welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And I'm very pleased to say that joining me today is renowned psychopharmacologist, Dr. David Healy. David is a psychiatrist, scientist and author. Before becoming a professor of psychiatry in Wales, and more recently at McMaster University in Canada, he studied medicine in Dublin and at Cambridge University. He is a former secretary of the British Association for Psychopharmacology and has authored more than 220 peer-reviewed articles and 25 books, including The Antidepressant Era, The Creation of Psychopharmacology, and Pharmageddon. He has been involved as an expert witness in homicide and suicide trials involving psychotropic drugs and in bringing problems with these drugs to the attention of the American and European regulators. David is a founder and CEO of Database Medicine, which operates through its website risk.org, which is dedicated to making medicine safer through online direct patient reporting of drug side effects. In this interview, we discuss the recently held World Tapering Day, a possible relationship between antidepressant treatment and sensory neuropathy, and the difficulties that can be encountered when trying to deprescribe. David, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me again for the Madden America podcast. And uh, I think we've spoken a couple of times before and for a psychiatric drug withdrawal panel that we had as well with you. So, um, you know, it's always fabulous to have you on. And, um, you know, there are various bits and pieces of work doing have been going on with you and with others with risk.org and with post SSRI sexual dysfunction and many other things so it's good to catch up and kind of touch base and explore where your thinking is at with various things so firstly welcome well it's good to be here and uh, your conversations have always been great and uh, the issues are probably pertinent to some stuff that I was looking at over the weekend linked to world tapering day so yes there's lots of things to pick up on I think so yeah, uh, as you say, um, World Tapering Day was held recently. So that was the 4th, 5th and 6th of November. And it was kind of led by people from the Netherlands, actually, and people who themselves have experience of some uh, with opioid withdrawal and with supporting other people and some with antidepressants. But I just wondered what your reflection was on World Tapering Day and whether it's a good thing to kind of, you know, get people together around this kind of banner. I think it, uh, it was a great thing from a few different points of view. First of all, I think putting the idea of tapering on the map and having strips, uh, which gives both the patients who may want to get off the drugs and the doctors who are faced with the question from patients, you know, how do I get off these drugs? The idea that there is a way to do it makes it easier for people to recognize the problem. I think a lot of the problems in both mental health and healthcare become problems because someone comes to the doctor who has no answers. And because they've got no answers, they don't want to even hear or see the problem. And that adds to the problem, the fact that I've not been seen, not been listened to, not believed. Okay, Even if the doctor hasn't an answer, it's great to be believed. Now, if the doctor and the patient has an idea that tapering strips, for instance, are a way to move this forward, that's going to encourage them both to take the chance. And as we know, there are, there are a lot of people who can just get off anyway. Uh, a lot of people who have problems, and uh, I'm sure uh, the tapering strips help. And some people who have worse problems, which may not be just a simply a tapering strip thing. 
Now, one of the things I want to quickly add in here before I forget is looking at the World Taper Day presentations and the videos that are there now, which anyone who didn't get to go and hear the talks live can uh, can actually look at all of the talks uh, now. Peter Grood, who's the person who got taping strips off the ground, is very impressive. Not in the way of an expert standing up there and saying, you know, this is the way, the truth and the light. Much more a case of he's just painfully honest and decent. You know, he kind of talks about the issues. We haven't got everything solved. There's a lot we don't know what we're doing uh, and things like that. And um, somehow has a way of um, getting things in that need to be got in under the radar. And let me explain with that right at the end of his talk. He said things that are that are all too true, which is that the pharmaceutical companies brought these drugs on the market in a one-size-fit-all version, and they didn't have doses that we could step down to and make it easy to get off. And he didn't quite use the word evil, but he went very close to it, uh, saying that this is a complete scandal. It means that, you know, the people who are rich, fine, they can go along to compounding pharmacists and pay double or triple the costs, or they can buy liquids at a much higher cost and things like that to help them get off. But most people who are hooked on antidepressants don't have these options that if the family doctors refuse to actually prescribe a liquid because it's going to cost them more, or if they go to a compounding pharmacy and hear that, well, yes, we can make that up for you, but it's going to cost a lot more, it really gets people um, in a bind. This is an awful problem, which affects millions of people, messes up the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. There's no support for the people that are caught in this bind. So Peter, as I say, gave what was a terribly simple talk, but fairly profound. And he's quite a remarkable man, I think. In my dealings with Peter, I've always been impressed by what motivated him to do this. And it, it was the simple motivation of helping people and identifying a problem that he could see a practical solution to. So there was never any never any talk about money from it or fame or recognition or anything. It really was simply about trying to fix a problem that he saw that affected him and affected others. And, you know, as you say, that the, the, the fact that tapering strips exist while I don't suggest they are the right tool for everybody. They are another tool in the box. And the more tools in the box there are, the more proof there is that this is a pressing problem that needs those tools. And, you know, it does give somewhere where doctors can say, well, actually, there is a potential answer that I, to this problem that I might better help this person with if people are believed. That's a big issue in itself, isn't it? That, that you know, there are a number of things, withdrawal, perhaps chronic fatigue, you know, a few other things, perhaps even long COVID now, where as soon as that person starts talking and the doctor hears certain phrases, they they stop believing that person. I wondered what your experience was of, of that and people sharing their accounts with you. And, you know, is there anything that can be done to get your doctor on board? Yeah. And I've been thinking about this a lot, but just to, um, just to hop back quickly before we go on to getting the doctor on board. And that is, that is a key question. One of the other things taping strips does is even if it's not right for all people okay even if i mean as i think there's a group of people who have a sensory neuropathy caused by the drugs and uh, while tapering helps with that it's not the complete answer you know there's going to be some people that we're going to have to try and find some way to make the little nerve endings that actually seem to be damaged regrow okay but aside from that 
what? I mean, you know, there are still to this day doctors and loads of them, probably even most of them, telling people who actually come along to want to get off the drugs. Well, first of all, there's other group of doctors who say, no, you can't. You have to remain on these for the rest of your life. Okay. And that's a huge group. But there's also the group that say to, you know, uh, 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 the person, whether it's an SSRI or a benzodiazepine or whatever, oh, look, it's easy enough. Just um, switch from taking one pill a day to one every two days. And then after a few exchanges, one every three days. This is disastrous. I mean, this is very bad advice. So one of the things tapering strips can do, which is good for all people, is to stop doctors saying, crazy things like this. I mean, it might sound reasonable to them, but you know, we know that it's just not the right idea and is actually going to make things worse. But um, you're right, a lot of people run into a doc- I have a sense even that they can't talk about these things because the doctor, even though they think he or she is a nice person, may turn nasty, you know, and may play the expert card. Okay. Uh, I'm the expert, um, you know, when you've got 10 years training in medicine, then we can have a conversation, <laughs> you know, something like that. Um, but, you know, for me, I've learned more from the people who brought problems to me than, than from any of my medical colleagues, really, and from the things I was taught, like a lady who taught me that exercise can cause you to become alcoholic and told me more about the serotonin system than I knew. People who've got PSSD, who are the ones who come up with all the research ideas, it's not me, you know. So, But equally, there's a further thing that people can do for themselves in groups and things like that. And um, let me tell you what I think is a great story. Uh, I had a patient who actually looks a little bit like you, about the same height, same build, same charming manner, who had bad OCD. This was, this was uh, four or five years ago. Nice man who is a electrician and came into me and he had OCD and he, and he had to go and fix heating systems and things like that. And uh, you have to undo a whole bunch of wires and then put them back in the right place, which is a nightmare if your OCD is acting up, you know, have I got these, these right? So they take pictures the whole time of how it was before we changed them and then picture of how things are now after we've changed them. And, you know, if you go home you could, and you're not sure you did it right, you can look at the picture to try and reassure yourself. But anytime I've had people come into the house to fix the heating since, and I see them take out a phone, you can ask them if they have OCD, and they'll often say, yes, I do. <laughs> this man, his OCD had acted up, and he'd been on SSRIs before, and we put him on an SSRI and tried clomipramine, which is a bit stronger. You know, through the whole thing, this is just a nice man who was clearly suffering, and OCD can cause terrible suffering. And, uh, you know, my urge and instinct was, you know, uh, to help him. I was doing everything I could, but things didn't seem to be working out, okay? So one day he comes back to the clinic and is looking, I mean, he knows that I like him and things like that, and he sh- I think he should feel free to say anything to me, but he doesn't. He has to sound things out and decides, yes, I'll try it out. I'll tell Healy, um, what I've done, <laughs> okay? And he says, look, you know, the OCD got worse when I stopped smoking. And I've gone back on smoking, and what do you know? It's a lot better. And I'm there thinking this is very interesting. And he says, look, I've Googled this, and actually, you know, there are clinical trials of 
smoking and nicotine patches and a drug for Alzheimer's called donepazil, which acts a little bit the same way for OCD. I mean, there is evidence for these things uh, for OCD. So there's a lot of research that people out there, you know, who can be electricians or whatever, do, and they come up with the right answers. I had a, <laughs> I had a fascinating conversation afterwards, which has gone nowhere. Maybe people listening into this can help me with it. I called British American Tobacco on the phone and said, look, I'm a doctor in mental health and I'm treating patients and uh, I'll be doing some research on smoking and patches and things like that. And it looks like smoking can be good for OCD. Uh, do you know anything about this? Is there anything you can tell me about this? Okay. And uh, there was silence at the other end of the phone. They're not used to people getting in dirt and saying, maybe this is a good use for smoking, you know. So they haven't ever gone back. They said they would check it out. But they ha- I mean, I've emailed them since and said, look, you guys were going to go back to me. They haven't. They don't want to go near it. But the other thing is, most people think, well, SSRIs are good, safe drugs. You know, they're prescribed by doctors. Doctors wouldn't tell you to smoke. But nicotine and alcohol are available over the counter because we, I mean, and other drugs, SSRIs are on prescription because we think they're more dangerous than nicotine or alcohol. But the other thing which, which needs to come into the frame a little bit is most people figure if you smoke consistently for the next 20, 30 years, it's going to shorten your life. If you drink every day for the next 20, 30 years, it's going to shorten your life. It, I, I'm sure if you take SSRIs, antipsychotics, and combine them, every day for the next 10 or 20 years, it's going to shorten your life uh, and and cause you to age visibly, you know. Uh, um, so, you know, it's one of the things people need to take into account. And doctors need to take into account when they put people on these drugs, you know, not just putting them on, but, you know, we need to be thinking from the start when and how to get them off, you know, which is not happening. That is a fascinating story and, you know, it reminds me of the ingenuity of people to try and find any way through their difficulties and quite often people are successful in making changes which are far outside the thing they're dealing with but actually have some beneficial effect or some ancillary effect which is helpful to them. And also, you know, you made me think about, I'm sure you've seen yourself, if you go on forums for SSRI withdrawal or, or antipsychotic withdrawal. There are perennial conversations about updosing to try and dampen down symptoms or to go back onto a tiny bit of what you were on in the hope that it might help. And, and some people do do that and they are helped by that. But there's tremendous shame and stigma associated with a lot of people who say, I, I feel that I haven't completed my journey. I feel shameful that I've had to go back on. But if, if it's an answer for people, it's an answer, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Peter raised this, which is, you know, tapering strips work. They're great, wonderful, uh, you know, but, but, but there are some people who aren't quite right when they get off it. And, uh, you know, it does seem to be the case for some people if they just go back on a one milligram dose. Okay. Now, there's a few curiosities about this. And let me see if I can try and remember them. One of the things to bear in mind is that quite apart from the fact that we don't have liquids being criminal, when the companies brought the SSRIs on the market, you know, they were scared they wouldn't be able to show them 
uh, showed that they worked. You know, that to get through FDA, uh, they really figured they need to give people a, an awfully high dose. When you take an SSRI, it's like driving a sports car uh, through a city center. You know, you're in something that is not built for the environment you're in. You know, uh, it can go from zero to 100 in two or three seconds, but, you know, you're not going to do that in the city center. Um, and from that point of view, like Prozac in a five milligram dose, even a one milligram dose is close to as effective in clinical trials as the 20 milligram doses. But they figured, let's make things simple for doctors. They weren't treating doctors like experts. They were just treating doctors like teenage consumers who needed kept simple. Okay. And this is why they brought the one size fit fits all dose on, which was just much too high. The old antidepressants came in, you know, a hundred milligram dose, a 50 milligram dose, a 25 milligram dose, a 10 milligram dose, and a liquid. But that all went out the window. So it's probably the case that, you know, going back on a very, very low dose, we don't quite know how low can be effective okay I and mean, there are good grounds to think that it will be beneficial it's not that you're on a terribly low dose you're on what in many respects is a reasonable dose <laughs> the other dose was unreasonable you know the one you were on to begin with was crazy but linked into that there's another possibility i think which is that for a group of people and it may be the people who find yes they've come off but life's just not quite right, and they need to go back on even a low dose. I'm not sure it's working as an antidepressant at that point. One of my hunches is it's working to manage sensory neuropathy. Now, what's that? Well, in all of us, we've got the big nerves that move our body around the place and things like that. We've also got a bunch of little nerves which are in our skin and uh, in our guts and things like that. And these have are what are called small fiber nerves. And they're unprotected. The big nerves have a big sheet around them. And if that goes wrong, you can have awful problems. But the little nerves don't have anything. They're kind of exposed. And one of the things we know about is that a lot of the psychotropic drugs we use, particularly for pain, like the antidepressants and the anticonvulsants, uh, actually help ease the pain by killing nerve endings. Okay. The thing that I'm interested in is obviously PSSD, post-SSRI sexual dysfunction, where I think our genitals and things like that go numb because what's happened is the nerve endings in them have got fried, okay? And it's not a brain problem. It's, it's, it's a peripheral problem. But of course, everything that isn't coming from the periphery to the brain is now leaving the brain, as it were, empty. And this is what I think gives rise to things like brain fog that people actually complain about. Um, you know, and it's not just the sensory input from the genital area, but it's from around the body, from your gut and things like that. Your brain is much more attuned to your gut and bladder and genitals than it is to the things happening outside you, okay? So when there's no input, this leaves the brain in, I mean, it gives rise to depersonalization, derealization, brain fog and things like that. And the big goal, the big trick here is to work out, well, if that's the case for some people who feel, well, I'm off the drugs, and that's a great achievement, and some things may be a little better, but I'm not feeling good. You know, when you've got that kind of thing happening, I think what we've got is not just a withdrawal problem, but a, it's revealed a sensory neuropathy problem, which is there in some people, but not all. I have a colleague 
who's a doctor who reported recently, you know, he was on SSRIs for a few years, didn't know you could get hooked to them and find it hard to withdraw, had an awful time trying to withdraw, but he was determined. And he got off them, tapered, got off them, and said, yeah, well, you know, I'm feeling better. There are things I can do now that I couldn't do on the pills and I was keen to be able to do. But, you know, I'm not that good. I mean, you know, they've caused me some harm, some damage. And then he got in touch with me one day, about four years later, and said, you know, hey, all of a sudden, just a few weeks ago, everything changed in a very short period of time, and I came back to normal. It was as though the lights went on. You know, I was feeling back to me. Now, that's kind of consistent with nerve endings regrowing and plugging themselves in and the brain getting a lot more kind of stimulation. So that's a little bit what interests me. But um, there's another angle on, and this comes back slightly, this is a bit strange, to the nicotine story and kind of smoking, um, which is that one of the big myths we have is that you want to avoid too many drugs that have an anticholinergic effect. Now, this idea goes back to the mid-1960s when a thing called the catecholamine hypothesis of depression turned up, which said that in people who are depressed, they've got lowered noradrenaline levels, or norepinephrine, as they say, uh, over in the States. Okay, Nobody was paying any heed to uh, uh, serotonin. Ah, serotonin. Okay. But uh, the idea was, you know, if you get a drug that's a pure norepinephrine reuptake, uh, inhibitor and doesn't do anything else, it'll work very well. I will be free of side effects. Okay. And the real thing we need to get rid of is well, most of these drugs have an anticholinergic effect also. And that causes you to be unable to pass water. It causes you to be constipated. It gives you a dry mouth and blurred vision. Well, everybody swallowed that, but it's not true. Um, that a lot of People, uh, you know, the patients, as they were called, in the hospitals would go around the place and, uh, you know, they'd be happy enough if you stopped their antipsychotic drug or lower the dose, but don't touch my anticholinergic. That's the one that's helping me. Now, helping me in two or three ways. One is it's a feel-good pill. I mean, it's, you don't get hooked to it as far as I know, but you, you do feel good on them, you know, um, and people in the past used to brew up herbs that were anti-cholinergic herbs uh, in order to feel good and euphoric and things like that, okay? But here's the thing, 10 years ago, there was early reports, and there's other people who've chased this, which is that anticholinergic drugs in a low dose can cause small nerve fiber endings to regrow. So, you know, we've been told, get people off anticholinergic drugs or reduce their anticholinergic burden. But in fact, we may be, I mean, that seems like an awfully good thing to do in ways, but in fact, it may do much harm. It's good, which is true of a lot of what we do. Um, but yeah, no, no, there's an increasing amount of evidence that it may be possible not just to let nerve fibers regrow, uh, these little nerve fibers regrow, which could take months or years, but to actually promote the regrowth so maybe we could get the job done much quicker 
I have to say, you know, there are a couple of fascinating posts on risk.org about this that you've written, and we'll put links in so people can find them. But, you know, not only is what you've written about this fascinating, but the response from readers, the comments back are, are fascinating too, in terms of their discoveries about this, as you mentioned earlier. And, you know, you, you talked about potential biopsies skin biopsies to see if this kind of damage can be checked for so you know is there a role there for neurologists should we be going on mass to neurologists to say help me with my possible withdrawal or sexual dysfunction problems rather than going to a gp who seems largely clueless well no gps are awfully good all things but equal you've got a better chance with the gp than um you have with uh, the specialists either mental health neurology or whatever they've got very boxed in and if the problem you're having is not totally and directly in their area, uh, they kind of disown it. Whereas a family doctor is more likely to have a slightly broader view. And, and if, as you say, we can turn them around, get them interested to um, listen and maybe not figure they have to have all the answers themselves, but maybe be a little bit more aware that the patient bringing the problem to them may also have an idea of what the answer might be. You know, if you're going to get uh, off your antidepressants, you know, I mean, I don't think taping is the whole answer, but a much safer bet is to become an expert on taping strips. Go and see the world taper videos and then bring the answer to your doctor who will be there saying, well, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to cross you over from this drug to that drug or what rate to bring you down. You know, if you can do the work for him or her, it's more likely to work out but also just on this score just it's been recently as you may as people who go to the risk blogs will see it's been people with pssd now i'm sure this is true for withdrawal as well who've found that a lot of them seem to have antibodies to the cholinergic receptors and one or two others that seem to be linked into all this so again this is being driven by the people who have the problem and who've got skin in the game you know the average doctor hasn't got skin in the game so you know the trick is how to get him to think it was his idea but you're the one who's feeding it to him so thank you and um you know you you also mentioned in that blog you know again i think something i shared with you that i hadn't really thought of in a way you know of course like many people in my situation i've been bound up almost 24 hours a day in tapering and withdrawal and trying to learn as much about it as possible and trying to understand it and trying and failing to understand what's happening with me but um you know that the, there's um i can't remember the exact wording but you talk about tapering revealing a problem rather than causing it and you know that's that's quite a shift in my thinking and i really thought about that long and hard you know so you know again many people in forums will say well i I didn't start to suffer until i tapered so that must mean i tapered the wrong way you know and they blame themselves and give themselves a real kicking for it so the question is there did they did the way they taper cause their problem or would that problem have arisen no matter how they tapered how slowly took years months weeks whatever so you know is the tapering revealing an iatrogenically caused problem in the body or is it causing it and the, the way you wrote about it I, I found really interesting in terms of t- thinking about coming off a drug revealing the damage that it had caused but had concealed actually we should come back to neurologists because you asked me about them should we go to them but 40 50 years well i hate to tell you how long ago maybe i shouldn't have said 40 even um when i was training in medicine i had a big medical textbook and i used to like it because you know the paper was nice and some of the images they had were great and they had a 
diagram or two that caught my eye back then. It was showing the peripheral nervous system and uh, you know, the sensory fibers and explaining that there was a problem that then was caused, but don't hear the word much now, causalgia. That's C-A-U-S-A-L-G-I-A. And that meant essentially burning feet. Okay. And they explained women got this a lot more than men. It was also linked to alcohol. And this was at a stage when, at least as far as I was concerned, women drank less than men. So the idea that they were getting causalgia more was kind of interesting. And that may be just what caught my eye. But so, yeah, so there's this burning feet problem that was a peripheral neuropathy, we were told, but no one really understood what was going on. Okay. And turns out that not only alcohol and smoking and cancer chemotherapy drugs, all, all of the things that we know are either bad for you are, well, they may be good for you, but everybody expects cancer chemotherapy to cause awful harms. But once we get into that ballgame, you realize that prescription drugs can probably cause it too, but there's a great silence about anything else, the good drugs causing it, okay? But that's what I think we've got with a lot of the antipsychotics, the antidepressants, the anticonvulsants, uh, the benzodiazepines, and things like pre-gabalin are openly marketed for controlling the pain of burning feet, okay? Now, burning feet isn't just caused by drugs. I mean, there's all sorts of other things that probably cause it. People are happy to say pesticides and things like that can cause it. Okay. So, but you get the idea. Chemicals cause it. This is one of the biggest things. The extraordinary thing about neurologists, though, is very much they're very good on the big nerves that cause a body to move around the place and been able to give us answers as to what disease of your big nerves are your brain you've got. But when it comes to these little fibers and the sensory things, the things where, you know, they might ask you, well, is this painful here now? And uh, you say, yes, it is awfully painful. And they come back a few minutes later and you say, well, no, it's not as painful now as it was just a few minutes ago. This, this is the thing they're awfully uncomfortable with, which is the subjectiveness of it, which is, you know, the sensory symptoms can change a lot. You know, they don't, it, 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 it's as though you've got a, fluctuating grid and things aren't identically the same in every spot in the grid every time you test it you know that's you know the sensory system and that's what they're not good at and and there's huge i mean it'd be great to seduce them into it and if 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 we can show that terribly common drugs like the antidepressants can cause this kind of problem and that there's a way to regrow the nerve fibers that's the kind of thing that might really get them interested and happy to help. But at the moment, if you go to a neurologist, they're not going to be interested. Okay, it's very few people who will uh, be interested and say, well, we'll do a skin biopsy or we'll check for antibodies and things like that. It's kind of something where the people who have the problems, you guys have the problems, are the experts on what the symptoms are you have. A lot of neurologists are, aren't terribly keen to go into this area. They know it's very messy. Um, there does seem to be good evidence that at least some people are affected. It's certainly not all people who go on antidepressants. It's uh, probably not even all the people who come off antidepressants that look like they might have a sensory neuropathy. You know, the skin biopsies we do may not show a positive result in all those cases. And the antibody tests, which has also come on stream lately, you know, this idea that when you get your autoantibodies tested, that 
you've got antibodies to the receptors that probably are the ones that control whether your nerve fibers are going to regrow or not. It's going to take a lot of trial and and error. People going along and getting the tests, you know, who who really have a genuine condition, but the tests seem to say, no, you don't. You know, well, we need to think about what other antibodies could we test her? Should we just stick with taking a skin biopsy down around the ankle or should we be trying it elsewhere as well? This all strikes me as hugely important and a, a you know a, a valuable different direction to look for answers in. And, and I guess moves the conversation on from this just being a problem of the brain to a, you know, a conversation of it's a problem in the wider body. Yeah, sure. But it's really interesting when you we've sent a questionnaire out to people with PSSD and asking them what the range of symptoms they have are. And people who've got PSSD say to us, look, you've got this all wrong. You're focusing too much on the genitals only. And they're right. We only focus on that, though, because if we can solve this problem about how that bit of skin gets numb, we'll have the answer to lots of things. But when they report back, I mean, we give them the option to report on loads of different symptoms and there's emotional numbing and things like that. But equally, there's a lot of skin things like itch and allergies and stuff, which what what people need to remember is most of the SSRIs come from antihistamines. So it's not just the serotonin system that's actually been affected. It's also the histamine thing. And if you think of histamine, you don't think of brains. You think of skin (laughs) and guts, you know, which is where a lot of the problems happen when you actually try to withdraw from these drugs. Absolutely. Aren't, anti-psy- aren't some antipsychotics, antihistamines too? Isn't that where they originated? That is where they all come from. And, and the antipsychotics is kind of, you know, they're, uh, it'd be nice to solve the problem with the antidepressants, first of all, because they're, I mean, they can cause awful problems, but it just seems like the antipsychotics can be harder to get off. They're just more heavy duty. Thank you, David. And, um, in, in in our kind of back and forth before this, you, you you mentioned tapering medication burdens. Is that something we can touch on? Oh, absolutely, sure. And I've got an interesting story or two to tell you about that. Um, I'm involved with a group uh, who are linked to risk.org uh, who've created TaperMD. Okay, and it's really the other people in risk. Uh, there's D. Mangan, Peter Wood, James Wood, and one or two others who've been working on this day in, day out for the better part of five years at least, okay? And it fits in with something that people talk about called de-prescribing, which all sounds good. Now, the thing is, there's a lot of talk about it, but in practice, we're not actually de-prescribing. People are ending up on more and more drugs. We're in a polypharmacy world, where, you know, a few years ago, you were on one or two drugs. Now you're on four or five, and it looks like the kids coming through are on four or five to begin with. By the time they get to be as old as me, goodness only knows how many they'll be on, you know. And again, this is a bit like, uh, you know, everybody figures if you smoke, you're going to die early. If you drink too much, you're going to die early. If you smoke and drink too too much, you're going to die even earlier. It's It's a bit the same, you know. If you're on one a prescription drug that you need to save a life, that's fine. Everybody thinks that's maybe a reasonable trade-off. But if you found a bunch of them and most of them aren't life-saving, well, you're going to die earlier, okay? And actually, the data coming out points that way. So, But it's, it's not enough to just be in favor of de-prescribing. And I'll explain 
explaining why uh, now in a moment. And this is typical of mental health as well, you know, which is I see people in clinics these days, young people often who are on eight psychotropic drugs. And this is just insane. I mean, it's a delusional belief system, which a lot of doctors, a lot of psychiatrists buy an idea which comes from uh, the pharmaceutical companies, which is if you have a bad reaction to an antidepressant, this means you're bipolar. And they might say, well, we shouldn't have put you on the antidepressant to begin with, or else they'll say, well, we'll add an anticonvulsant in to the antidepressant. And once they add the anticonvulsant in, if you're not quite right, well, an antipsychotic is also good for bipolar disorder. We'll add that in. And uh, if you're not quite right, well, if you come back and say, maybe I'm a little bit better, if you figure I need to tell this guy I'm a little bit better, he's going to put me on more drugs. But, you know, I've, you know, I don't have quite as good a focus as I had before. Well, they say, ah, you've got ADHD. Take this rating scale. <laughs> and it shows up that you're not quite as focused as you want to be. And uh, they say, well, let's give you a stimulant, which is pulling the opposite way to the antipsychotic, you know. But, you know, they're building up a bunch of drugs rather than figuring, well, the antidepressant we gave you in the first instance is um, not right. Just to get over how crazy doctors. I mean, they have a terrible bias towards thinking anything that's going wrong is linked to the condition. Whether it's blood pressure, mental problems, it's linked to the condition. If if you get worse, if things go wrong, it means you've got a worse condition, which means we need to give more drugs. And you can see this. I mean, the extraordinary thing for me is when People began talking about this first. It was people linked to the pharmaceutical industry who sold the idea around 2004, 2005, when they were trying to sell drugs for bipolar disorder. But also they, they saw the opportunity when the SSRI and suicide thing came up to say, oh, hey, you should be taking an anticonvulsant. But if you said to them, look, if I give SSRIs to healthy volunteers, I mean, totally healthy, normal people, they can become suicidal. Don't you think it's the drug causing this? And uh, they say, no, 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 no. These people must have had a latent bipolar disorder. You know, they're saying normal people are ill. We just didn't know it until we gave this drug. Let me give you a feel for where this can go. I was, when I came over here first, I was working in a place called Guelph, which is, uh, well, I was doing a clinic there. I was part of uh, the family mental health team taking up uh, uh, the referrals that came from 70 family doctors in the area. And they were all, it seemed to me, a very good uh, group of doctors. And uh, the patients they referred were very good referrals. They weren't hardcore. There were people who had been on antidepressants and maybe they weren't working uh, all that well after they'd been on them for about 10 years. Uh, the doctor may have tried adding one or two other things in and things went bad. So, you know, the question then to me was, well, what do we do now? Okay, are there people who figured maybe they had ADHD and the referral was maybe because uh, you know, the doctor felt they weren't absolutely sure and wanted some expert input, me to say, yes, they do have ADHD or whatever, okay? But anyway, um, things were going well and it was in the middle of uh, the pandemic. I mean, I just moved uh, actually over here to Canada. And uh, for me, being in the clinic was a great way to meet real Canadians because you weren't meeting them anywhere else. So, you know, they were nice people. Uh, and I was doing a few things that were a little unorthodox that I've been doing in the UK for a long time, which was 
when you write a letter on the person to the doctor who's referred them, over here you've got an electronic health record, so you don't post a letter to the doctor, you put the entry into the electronic health record. And I was copying the person in. Okay, I checked with them and said, look, this is what's going to go into your record. Do you want to read it? And if there's things wrong, you can point that out the next time we meet. We know that after you have a consult, even with a person who's trying to be easygoing and relaxed and things like that, uh, that you don't remember half of it afterwards. Part of the reason to give the letter to people was to ensure that they saw what was actually said and could, you know, check it out again when they were, you know, if you read the entry afterwards, you had a chance to remember, oh yeah, he also said that or whatever, you know. And the idea is, when you come in to see me, whatever, I mean, it's not, you know, you're not getting tablet of stone handed down from God, you know, it's much more a case of the thinking you do afterwards is what's most helpful to you, more helpful than anything that I might say. You know, it may be even that you think back on what you said and figure, well, I got that slightly wrong. You know, I didn't quite say what I meant. And if you begin to change the way you phrase your own problem, it can do much more for you than anything that I might say. So the other thing was when I emailed things to people, they had my email, and if they had problems, they could get in touch with me over the weekend. And some people were trying to withdraw from drugs and things like that. I wasn't trying to get everyone off their drugs. And the people on eight or nine drugs, I was trying to get it down by one or two drugs, all things been equal, but slowly, you know, without trying to push it. I was also saying one or two things like, we need to recognize you've been on this SSRI for 10 years. Some of the problems you're talking about are you're withdrawing from the drug even though you're on it. And there's no easy answer for this. I mean, no one has an answer. There's no drug approved for that, you know. The potential problem is if you write a note like that, to the patient and doctor, the doctor may feel they made a mistake. You know, they're being accused of putting the person on the SSRI when they shouldn't have done. So I almost always said, look, with this person's problem, if I'd seen them 10 years ago, I'd have done exactly the same thing. You know, we all have a problem, you, me, and the patient. We all have a problem we need to work on, okay? So one day at the end of the year, uh, I had an early morning Zoom meeting. I mean, I was one of the only people who was actually physically in the clinic and where possible seeing people physically also as opposed to on video. But I had an early morning Zoom meeting with the management who said to me, you're fired. And I he was asking why. And I didn't believe what they told me to begin with. I thought there has to be all sorts of other things. And there were all sorts of other things that sounded like reasonable hypotheses about what was going on. But it's, in essence, what they said to me was, well, you know, what you're doing is great if you were doing it in private practice. That if you had a shingle up in the door telling people that you're open to getting them down off all the drugs they're on, not getting rid of them all, but just tailoring it down, and that you may be open to the fact that the drugs may be causing half of the problem they've got, and people chose to come along to that, that'd be great. But we run a public service, and we don't have the staff to stream patients, the ones who want to get off drugs to you, and the ones who want more drugs to the other doctors. And essentially, the system was geared toward the sense that some people and some doctors 
want people to get more diagnoses and more drugs. Uh, so that's what happens for all people. You know, you could, I mean, most of the feedback that I was getting from the doctors are the patients I saw was, this is great. You know, hey, we've talked for an hour and you haven't told me I need drugs. Gosh, this is a, this is a big surprise, you know. Um, but it turns out there were two or three doctors, probably four or five patients, probably. I mean, I haven't been told you know, the figure, but everyone else, all of the other doctors and all of the other patients are trapped. They're in a system whether they're going to be given more diagnoses and more pills, whether they like it or not. So while there's a bunch of us talking about de-prescribing and reducing medication burdens, and Taper MD is the thing we've we've created to try and help with that, that's not the way the tide is going. You know, the tide's not going out and using pills. The tide's still coming in, and most people are going to get more labels and more pills. And there and there are some people who will be unhappy if they don't get more diagnosis and more pills. So, you know. Uh, David, I'm so sorry you had that experience. Well, hey. But it tells people how things are going. I mean, it's not unique to me, I'm sure. It, It does point to the kind of situation we're in, to which there's no easy answer other than people getting together and saying, look, you know, things have just gone crazy. So, so this issue of polypharmacy, David, do, do you think it's because doctors generally believe that the drugs are benign and they can prescribe whatever they want with very little problem? Or do you believe it's because there's an unwillingness perhaps to go and, as you said, look at previous, you know, when, when they have prescribed a new drug, they don't look at the burden already established? Or maybe they don't want to question that, you know, a, a psychiatrist has prescribed an antidepressant and they're just a GP, so they don't feel qualified to do that. So is there a particular thing that's driving this polypharmacy or, or is it a combination of things? Yeah, it's very hard to know. And, um, you know, we've got the Green Party and Greta Thunberg talking about the pollution of the environment and things like that. Uh, but equally, even the Green Parties and younger people of Greta's generation seem to almost want to pollute their inner environment, you know, more than ever before, which, you know, is an extraordinary contrast. Um, so it's you've, it comes back to there's a certain amount of insanity in uh, the mental health system, which is, again, one of the myths that turned up 20-odd years ago was that antipsychotics are neuroprotective. I mean, this is just... I mean, we can see with our own eyes that you've got people ending up with tardive dyskinesium problems like this who have severe neurological problems. How on earth anyone could think that these drugs were neuroprotective I don't know, but they do. I mean, they they actually think it intensely. And if you ask them for the evidence, they can't actually provide it. I mean, this is delusional. There's a craziness to it all. It's um, terribly hard to know how you know, to solve it. Uh, as, as I say, we're working hard on this Taper MD approach, which uh, it seems to me to be awfully sensible. It's It's recognizing that doctors don't want to recognize the harms they do that you know they just want to think they're doing good which you can see you can sympathize with can't you you know if if there's only so many levers you can pull then you're going to pull the easiest lever aren't you sure but what we're trying to do is to say look you know um if you're going to do good 
as much good as you can. You know, you're not doing more and more good every time you add a pill in. You know, it looks like, and all the evidence points to the fact that once you go much above three pills, even if you're putting on the person person on a drug for a condition that they have and the pill might help, once you get beyond three, uh, you know, you're likely doing harm and you're going to cause them to die earlier. And when you try and reduce medication burdens, again, the evidence is that they are less likely to go into hospital and less likely to die earlier and actually just feel better. Okay, so there is a real issue and it's trying to appeal to the sense of judgment of you're the doctor and you're the patient as well because they're actually part of the problem too. You know, we are part of the problem too, wanting help with things that, you know, it's not a crime to want help with things, but, you know, what we need to recognize is We've got to make choices. You know, once you're, you're on too many helps, they're going to kill you. So the trick is to sell the idea that to do the best amount of good, you know, we need to control how many drugs you're on. And, and I guess then, you know, in terms of the kind of increasing creep of the number of people on medications, there's been a big focus on the elderly. And, you know, I, I've seen articles from Canada where, you know, reporting that in, in old people's homes, 75% of the residents are on anti- antipsychotics, not because they've ever had a psychotic experience, but because it keeps them quiet and sedated, which is, is just dreadful to read. But recently here in the UK, it's been reported that um, children are um, being prescribed antidepressants uh, in GP surgeries at very young ages, which, you know, is, I mean, NICE have actually written this shouldn't be the case. I could be wrong. I think there's only OCD that's indicated for antidepressant treatment in youth. So, you know, I, I wondered if you'd seen that and whether Canada was similar or, and what you felt about it. So, yeah, no, it is. Um, you get teenagers who are dead keen to go on these drugs, and uh, it can be a tricky problem. I mean, I can think of one person I saw, a terribly nice young man with a very nice mother. Uh, he was in his teens and figured that uh, tricky things he had to handle that were making him anxious and an antidepressant would help. And, uh, you know, I told him about the risks and the problems and he said, sure, no, I can see that. And I can see that's a good case for not having them and things like that. He didn't come back to see me and didn't, you know, he went elsewhere to get an antidepressant. My hunch was one of the things linked into it was his mother was on one as well. So it's one of these cumulative things you know, where if you've got parents who are on antidepressants who say, well, look, you know, I'm on them and they're okay. They're not causing all the awful things that that guy said they could cause. You know, you're going to have a situation where if the child doesn't go on them, it's making the mother look bad. Why is she on them kind of thing? So we're into this thing where in a sense, it can only keep on increasing. So there's that. But talking about Peter Groot, there's also Peter Gotcha, whom everybody listening to this will have heard of. And just literally at the end of last week, uh, Peter has an article out, which is reanalyzing the Prozac trials in kids. And, you know, we all hear the whole time that Prozac is the one SSRI that works. Well, it doesn't. FDA internally concluded when they approved it that it didn't work in the trials that they were looking at, but they agreed to approve it. And it remained approved because when the fuss blew up about paroxetine, and FDA figured, even though they had written a letter to GlaxoSmithKline saying, we approve paroxetine for treating children who are depressed, even though you've told us the trials are negative, and we agree the trials are negative, okay? But they 
recognized when it first blew up because of uh, uh, the Panorama programs that they couldn't approve it. But everybody said, but at least you can use Prozac because that's approved for kids who are depressed. But exactly the same kind of results. You know, it should not have been approved. Um, but once they'd approved it, they weren't going to go back. So everybody thinks Prozac works for kids, you know. And it's not that SSRIs are totally useless, you know, for kids. As you said, in OCD, they can help. But we have a system as well, which which feeds it. This one more point, and it's a political point, which is systems can make good people bad. I think what you see in mental health, in all of health, but mental health in particular, is you, you, you see some people who have become part of the management system who end up doing terribly vindictive and inhumane things to people who don't respond the way they should do. You know, rather than going back and saying, well, look, we need to take more care with you, we need to look at this, not do the things we usually do because they're clearly making things worse. It's at this point the delusional belief that everything that goes wrong is your condition. So if you're not getting better, we're just going to give you more of the same. So they're doing that as part of the system, but also because above them are a group of managers who we didn't have 20, 30 years ago. And their job is to squeeze the system so it's using less money and they're saying to the bosses, you know, the politicians who are above them again, you know, we're getting better and better results for less and less money. And that's putting pressure the whole way down through the system, which the person who comes along for help ultimately feels the doctor or the nurse treating them is not in a position to deal with them as a human being. They're in a position which is, if I don't get you to tick the right boxes, my job is at risk. You know, it's a very toxic environment. That tick box culture is uh, causing an awful lot of harm, isn't it? Because it's not based on outcomes for the patient. It's based upon things you can actively and easily measure as a, as a, as a throughput of, is this a successful clinic or hospital or whatever else, because we've dispensed X number of drugs or we've administered X number of procedures for people rather than saying to people, how do you feel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And being driven by people. I mean, you know, the system will work a lot better if we let people drive it rather than trying to drive them. Yeah, it, it you know, it makes me think that when I, you know, when I had my interaction with my psychiatrist who prescribed to me if if I could go back and change that, what I would have liked her to say, and she was lovely, you know, she was very attentive and, you know, uh, took took time to understand what was happening for me. But what I'd like, what I would have liked her to say to me is, James, if we prescribe you these drugs, they will make you feel different. Now, that different might feel better or it might feel worse. So come back in six weeks and we'll talk about whether that is a better feeling or a worse feeling for you. But there was no discussion whatsoever. It was just a, you will improve on these drugs. There's no question. And when I did go back and say I wasn't, all of a sudden I wasn't believed, as you mentioned earlier, you know. So that that was the problem for me. You know, if we could have more honest discussions with people that the drugs make, they do make you feel different. They can have an effect, but that effect might put you in a better place or it might put you in a worse place. I think that, I can't help thinking that would be more healthy. Sure. But also to add into that should be just the case of, well, you're the expert on what's happening in you. You know, I mean, yes, you need to be told just what you were told there. And that's what I told the teenager whom I outlined earlier who came to me. Uh, but let's say he chose to go elsewhere, which is fine. I mean, you know, I've got no problem with that. But we're in this strange world where if he said, look, I've taken up smoking recently and it's really helpful. 
99.5% of doctors would say, you know, I'm not going to treat you anymore if you keep on smoking. I mean, this is the world we're in, which is you can treat nervous problems with alcohol and smoking if you're a good doctor. And patients are treating themselves often very successfully. You know, we you know, we need to take into account that there isn't, you know, uh, sort of the good book and the bad book or the good drug and the bad drug. It's these things are all tricky and to get a good outcome needs cooperation. You know, both the person who's going to take them and the person who says, well, look, what about this option? You know, you all need to be cooperating and open to changing, you know, hey, I've learned something out of this. Something that I didn't expect has happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it it's it's rather like the dietary advice that we've been given for probably two decades now to you know a, a avoid fat in our diets, but no mention at all of sugar, and that's pr- primarily down because there's an industry lobby body for sugar, but none for fat. Well, it's exactly the same. We've been herded along by lobby groups, and that's what's happening to us. We're in a herd, and we're being herded along particular paths. And when it's inconvenient, when we're not when the lobby groups aren't making money out of that path, they'll switch us over to maybe you know, the psychedelics or whatever. David, it, it, it's always a pleasure and an education to get to talk about these things with you. You know, I have to say that the um, articles on risk about PSSD and neuropathy are fascinating, and I do recommend people go and read them because not just for the blogs, but for the response from commenters too, who have seized the idea like picking up a rugby ball and they're running with it, which is fantastic to see. But, you know, before we wrap up, you know, I, I do just want to acknowledge that, you know, we touched on, on, on it in the beginning. You know, I'm so grateful to you because you are one of the few doctors who will get down in the weeds with people like me and people who have experienced difficulties and have an eye level conversation with people about their experiences and what they might have learned. And, you know, that there's so much humility in doing that that's missing from many doctors that I've kind of interacted with who just put themselves on a pedestal. And also, you know, your, you know, long history of curiosity and of looking at looking at these things through a, a fresh lens and a different perspective. Okay. Well, I just want to thank David for joining me today. If you're interested in finding out more about sensory neuropathy, then you can find David's writings by visiting the website rxisk.org. That's rxisk.org. Click the blogs menu and find the post entitled Sensory Receptors, Small Fibers and Neuropathy. So thank you as always for joining me today. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.